0: So, as long as we're talking about uh, questions, does anybody know how many species of earthworms there are? 7,000 according to Clive Edwards, who is the foremost expert on earthworms. So there's a lot of, of earthworms. And I'll ask you another question is, what is blind but has five hearts? An earthworm. So we, you know, we talk about ourselves uh, being uh, manpower, but actually the power of worms dwarfs anything that we can do. And I'm going to show, show this to you so you can appreciate that there's no need for artificial tillage as long as we can count on our earthworms. Okay. Can I have a boo? Boo, right? This is an enemy of the earthworm. It destroys the habitat and doesn't allow them uh, to really do their work. Actually, the moldboard plow has some very drastic uh, aspects on the structure and the biology of the soil. This is a plow pan. And when the plow is riding on the layer, it will compact the clay and it will make it so that the roots will not develop and the earthworms have a hard time dealing with this type of condition. So as the root systems are, are dwarfed, we don't get to take advantage of the uh, biological benefits of those root, roots. The roots are actually also what uh, the earthworms feed feed in the sense that the residue that comes from the plant is then ingested into the plant and returned back to the soil. So this is an earthworm cocoon. Does anybody know about the sexuality of earthworms? They, they have both sexes. So that, unlike ourselves, which, uh, like I am not reproductive at all, but our earthworm both Every individual is reproductive, so it's quite an advantage for the the earthworm. Uh, What we see here is an earthworm cocoon, which uh, gives us the new generation of earthworms. Actually, that uh, collar that is on the earthworm is what is the earthworm cocoon sack. And here you can see the earthworms making love with each other. And uh, so you have great ability within a month's time or a little bit more for a whole new generation, you can have generations and generations of earthworms in just a very short time. So earthworm provides very many multiple benefits that you as no-till farmers should be aware of, that it it increases the soil quality because the burrows actually form an ability to have drainage aeration and penetration of water it improves uh, crop productivity environmental quality and it also can uh, be something that can inhibit issues related to global warming so what is the solution to global warming global warming So here we have a situation where you can see the earthworm and it's making its tunnel. On the surface you have the castings of the earthworm. And the casting isn't the, uh, isn't the actors in the play, it's actually their excrement, right? So these castings are very important because they are a stabilized form of organic nutrition. Here are the castings uh, being formed on the surface. And according to work from uh, Great Britain, one earthworm in one year can produce 10 pounds of castings. Okay, so a well-wormed soil can have over a million earthworms in an acre. So that would mean 10 million pounds and about 4 million pounds would be able to give you a foot of soil. So that actually this can be completely transformational. Charles Darwin, the originator of the theory of evolution, said that earthworms were the most underestimated and underappreciated of all organisms. And I agree with him. If we look at the anatomy of the earthworm, those five red rings, let's see, uh, let me, I can't see the pointer, but the five red rings around the, uh, near the, the earthworm's head, those are the five hearts. But one thing that you should uh, be aware of is that, uh, the earthworm has a metabolism where it grinds its food like a bird does by a gizzard. And actually it has specialized glands that secrete calcium into this mixture of the gizzard. And then when it takes out the formed organic soil pellet, it also excretes a a small limestone so that earthworms can lime your soil and feed your soil and build your soil. So that's why we would say that they are the soil bioengineers. Okay. actually the only only gland that comes close to the calcium glands in the earthworm are the reproductive structures of the earthworm. So earthworms have two things in mind, to reproduce themselves and to be fruitful and to, uh, to have the digestion. And in their digestive process, they actually engineer and make new soil. Now in this slide, we have red areas... These red areas are acid areas of the world, and if you're in the eastern United States, a lot of the eastern, and particularly the southeastern United States, is quite acid. And acidity is one of the biggest enemies of earthworms. Another area that you see is blue, and that's an area that earthworms have problems with also because there are areas that are quite desert-like. And earthworms, for them to be most productive and most uh, transformative, they need to have plenty of calcium, which they use for their their digestion and for their uh, detoxification of what's going on in the environment. And they need to have plenty of water. So if if we can work with those, and they need to have plenty of food, which is plant material, If you're able to work with these types of situations, you can generate huge populations of earthworms. You don't have to put earthworms into the soil because imagine if there's 7,000 species, they are around. But what you need to do is feed them and give them a situation where you're not destroying their habitat. Okay, so here we have uh, an average man. Of uh, 75 kilograms, that's uh, about 160 pounds. If we look at the mass of earthworms, it's many times greater than that. And one of the things I'd like you to, to appreciate is that the earthworms and the microbes are the basis for this living environment. The earthworms are making an environment for the microorganisms okay so again the blue areas are those areas that all we have to do is add water the red areas are we have to uh, make sure that we don't we have enough calcium and the right pH in order for our earthworms to progress so here if we look at uh, let's start out with a plow everybody say boo Ooh, yeah, plow. And we have a corn, 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 corn environment. And we have just 39,000 earthworms per acre. Okay, I'm sorry for not having the, the title there. But, and then when we go to no-till, we double the amount of worms that we get. And why is that? Because we're not disturbing them through the plowing. But look at here, if we go to adding soybean to our corn rotation. So we have a corn and soybean rotation. Oh, well, now we have uh, quite a few more times again, right? 235,000 because actually the soybeans are very nutritive and they're very well fed. Uh, Earthworms love soybeans. And then if you go to a no-till corn and soybean type of situation, you double that. So we have this multiplication going on. And this is all about feeding the worms. What if we have a bluegrass clover pasture or a lay system, then we get over a million earthworms per acre. So we actually are doubling what we could do in that simple uh, grain. And then if we add manure, we triple that. So imagine if we take this 5 million earthworms in an acre, and each one of those earthworms can produce 10 pounds of castings, we have an enormous amount to build huge profiles of highly rich soil. And then we won't need to have the inputs and the issues that uh, are related to them. So, here are some of the favorable uh, aspects. If we just go to no-till, we can be, we can help a lot. But look at what happens when we add cover crops. That does even more, right? If we have rotations, that adds to the mix. If we have legumes, again, manure or compost. If we have mulch, if we lime our soils. How many of uh, the soils are not of the proper pH to uh, have the most abundant earthworm populations? A lot of them in those red areas. If you look at, uh, and we can go to mixed animal and cropping systems and get optimized results for our earthworms. So here are some of the antagonists to earthworms. We have the plowing. We have all this disking and rototilling. We have monoculture. We have ammoniated fertilizer. Why would ammoniated fertilizer be a problem for earthworms? Because it's directly toxic to them, and it also acidifies the soil. And this is, this is a, a quite an issue. Fungicides, insecticides, herbicides are quite common problems. We have soil compaction. If we are using heavy equipment on clay soils, which, and the soil is wet, we are going to be in problems. We have acidity and we have calcium deficiency. Are we we optimizing all of these so that the worms can do the tillage for us, rather than to have an enormous machine, try to take care of it, and when we're doing that, we're actually causing damage? So you know like one of the things is as someone who has been years and years in the organic system the idea is that uh, we have an, uh, uh, an appreciation of the unintended effects of the toxic materials that are in our agricultural system. So even if we are a conventional farmer We should be aware that we should be using chemicals as least as we can and using biology the most we can because generally, biology is always more effective and cheaper than chemistry. So let's look at these castings because I was telling you about how the excrement or the manure of these earthworms are so important. It has 26% carbon, and carbon is very important for the structure and the the maintenance of our soil. And also, when we increase the carbon in the soil, we are actually taking carbon dioxide out of the air. So that when we build up massive profiles of, of organically rich soil, we are combating greenhouse gases that are related to climate change. And if we look at the digestion of the earthworm, you can see that... uh, Oop, I I went the wrong way. Uh, Unintended consequence. The, The calcium which is needed for the digestion is something that is omitted from many of our fertilizers and many of our soils are not optimized for calcium. So the worms help us related to that issue. But it provides a completely balanced nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium gives all of the secondary uh, nutrients and the micronutrients that you don't find in general uh, conventional fertilizers completely for all of these micronutrients. And then, of course, you've heard about humus and humic acid and fulvic acids, these substances are incredibly stimulative to crop growth and they've been found not only do they stimulate roots rooting respiration photosynthesis but the defensive reactions of the plant so that the plant is stronger and doesn't need to have the support of the pathid, of the uh, the pesticides because the plants will withstand the insects and they'll de- protect themselves against the diseases and they will have more ability to get the nutrients in the environment so there's less of of a need to have uh, herbicides because these plants compete more effectively. This is the types of microorganisms that come from the digestive tract of the worm. So the worm actually serves as an incubator for the beneficial biology and then it seeds it back into the soil and you can see that it's very diverse and it's very beneficial here we have sugarcane and the sugarcane at the uh, at my side that is sugarcane that has received both humic acid or humic acid and beneficial bacteria and it gets the results that are much better than you can with, uh, with just feeding nutrients. Because these humic materials that the earthworms generate actually serve as plant growth regulators that stimulate the plant metabolism in various ways. So, if we, uh, you, Of course, all of you have seen that uh, if you have a load of manure and it falls on your road and you live in a residential area, you're going to have all sorts of people that are going to be complaining, right, about the raw manure. But if you have compost, all the ladies in the, in the neighborhood will collect it to use for their flowers and there's no problems. That's compost. But actually, if we look at these, what the worm is producing, it's superior to what what normal compost will do. It has 34% more phosphorus than than compost, 36% more boron, 46% more potassium, and it just goes on and on. One of the things that is really interesting is that it's very rich in minor nutrients and micronutrients that can be very important has 117% more zinc and the form of nitrogen is practically all in the nitrate rather than into the ammonia. And many times there's toxicity problems related to ammonia and actually acidification. But when plants absorb nitrate, they have less of those problems and it tends to keep the soil at the right pH rather than acidifying. So, I have a to-do list for all of the people that want to deal with uh, earthworms. Reduce and eliminate your tillage. This is something I probably don't need. Correct the acidity of your soils and and get them balanced. Have a rotation and emphasize legumes. Use your winter cover crops. Uh, Have manure and compost as a part of your system. Diversify your cropping system so it's both a cropping and animal system and intensify your rotational grazing where you have animals. So when I first heard this thing about, uh, there was this guy who said, well the solution to global warming is global warming, I I thought that was a joke, right? But actually when I started doing the math, I'm completely convinced that this is the solution global warming Uh, the answer is literally under our feet and we haven't had any appreciation for it and I think this is why Charles Darwin was completely right this these types of of, uh, biology are completely underground and unappreciated the lowly earthworm So the other thing that I'd like you to consider is that since we have an audience that is very comfortable with no-till farming, that they consider the benefits of extending uh, no-till farming into an organic no-till type of system. Actually, this type of system was, uh, was first introduced at the Rodale Institute, where we were trying to get the best of both worlds the best of no-till, and the best of organic. And we've been looking at this, uh, the, the contrast side-by-side side of conventional and organic systems for about 40 years now. So we have been able to see how transformational the biology is related to our, our results ongoing. And, of course, we want to get the best of both the no-till and the organic philosophies. These are some side-by situations from, uh, from the Rodale Institute. And what do you think that type of uh, change is going to do in terms of your, your cropping system? It's particularly seen in droughts because when you have this mellow expanded soil that has higher organic matter, you get more water that penetrates into the soil, you have more water that is retained, and you even have more water that is able to go into the aquifer. What you have drastically less of is the water that runs off. That is the problem of the leaching and the erosion, etc. So this is related other authors have talked about, is increasing diversity and keeping the the land covered at all times. This is the basic uh, philosophy, and it should be something that can harmonize with both no-till farming and organic farming, right? These principles are valid if you're a no-tiller or if you're organic, and if you can combine the two, you can leverage both of the philosophies. What do I have here? Those little fine, uh, lightly colored things are mycorrhizae. And mycorrhizae are one of the first microorganisms that really proliferates off of of, uh, root systems when they're not exposed to toxicity. And these can actually increase and multiply the effective root system by thousands of times and they produce a, a sugar protein that actually can, can withstand uh, not being degraded in the soil for many, many years. So this is one of the, the things about why we say biology can do it better than chemistry. Many times we just have to stop doing things that are inhibiting the positive biology. Here we have, this is from from Florida. If we look at the side towards me, this is uh, non-inoculated with mycorrhizae. And the one that is on the other side that is robust, that was inoculated with mycorrhizal fungi so that the extension of that root system effectively allowed the plot to become tolerant to drought because it avoided it through the extended root system. So here we have uh, the conventional plot against the organic plot in a drought year. You won't see this in a year that has a lot of moisture because there's plenty of moisture, there's no problem. But in drought years, you have this thing that, and this is related to the biology that you don't see in the soil working its magic. And we have a lot of confidence in this type of approach because we have embedded within our studies water collection so that we can measure what goes through and, and what type of quality the water that goes past the roots is. And so we can, we have measured over 35,000 readings and we can say with uh, security that the water relations are greatly improved once we are able, taken off of uh, some of the inputs that have their their problems. In fact, we can actually take clods of the different ones and pop them into, uh, and give it a test, and there's a very clear difference when we're able to increase the organic matter, improve the biology. The soil holds together based on the organic substances and what they do to the structure and the ability of the soil. So, just as uh, some reiteration of the importance, uh, you know, we are big proponents and in the workshop, we'll talk about organic no-till. But, you know, like cover crops, whether you're a conventional farmer or a organic farmer, for an organic farmer, there was no other alternative so that if we didn't have inputs, we had to increase the soil. So, the cover crop, but that doesn't mean that it isn't just as valid for conventional farmers than it is for for organic farmers. So, the uh, winter rye, the cereal rye, is the most used cover crop. It will reduce the uh, amount of losses of nitrogen from lixation of of nitrates. It provides amazing weed control, as, as people have seen and it also increases the soil organic matter. This is the uh, Rodale no-till system. On the front end of the tractor there is a roller that rolls, rolls and crimps and you do that at the right stage, you kill the, you kill the rye and you get uh, soybeans that have uh, have weed control without putting on herbicide and in the back of the planter in a one-pass system, you have your no-till planter. So that it's quite an efficient uh, system. So one of the things I think that people are around here are probably concerned about the price of, price of soybeans and corn. Because they've been going down from what I've seen. But what about the premium that you have if you're able to produce an organic certified crop of soybeans? Last time I looked, the the price of soybeans was about $9 per bushel. The price of, of organic certified soybeans is $18 a bushel. If you have food grade organic soybeans, you can get up $25 a bushel. And they're still soybeans. You know, so like, there are energy advantages, there are environmental advantages, and there are economic advantages of having your mind open to taking no-till to another step and making your system fully organic. Here we have hairy vetch. Okay. You ready for a joke? What is the most aggressive type of hairy vetch? That's dirty hairy (laughs) vetch. Okay. The, uh, but Harry Vetch, uh, how much of our atmosphere is nitrogen? 80% did someone say? Okay, so do you think that if we're awash with uh, nitrogen all around us in the air, that there is any real limitation of nitrogen as long as we're able to have dirty Harry over here, uh, taking all this nitrogen in and then uh, putting it into our agricultural system? It's just a matter of changing and, and putting the emphasis on legumes to an extent that we can favor this positive biology. Okay, here you have the, the organic no-till system. You have a front end roller that when it's done at the appropriate, appropriate stage, it kills the cover crop without any type of chemical. And in the back you have the no-till planting. And in this case, you're planting maize or corn and using uh, the hairy vetch to provide all the nitrogen needs for an optimum acre of maize. So some of the elements that we want to look at for success in this system is, uh, you, just like these, these people are saying, is put the emphasis on the cover crop and then you won't have the problems in your main crop. So, you know, like the, the, the uh, trick here is to change your, your thing to focus on the previous crop. For instance, if we have 6,000 kilograms per hectare or more, and 6,000 kilograms per hectare is very similar to 6,000 pounds per acre, so we can deal with that. It will smother the weeds and give you the thing. If you you can't get that, you're not going to get the type of weed control that you're going to need for an organic uh, successful system. So, and the other thing is the stage that you're going to roll these, right? These crops have to be at full flower in order for them when they're crimped, they don't want to come back, okay? And so like, there is, uh, you have to develop expertise in knowing the stages and growing them so that they are uniform and consistent so that when you do it, you get the control that you're looking for. Now, one of the things that uh, can happen, you heard about the story about the cutworms and the armyworms, right? So that if you're in a situation where you're using hairy, hairy vetch, uh, you have to be looking out to see what is the situation, scouting for cutworms and armyworms, and if they're at a economically damaging level, you have to treat for them, right? And they're biological treatments that can be completely uh, consistent with retaining your your certification, etc. So just as a little bit of review. Uh, the traditional cover crops have been the winter rye, particularly for soybeans. Hairy vetch for corn. And your results will depend on how successful you are in the cover crop. That, that is the, the main thing. And uh, one of the things with hairy vetch is the biggest problem with hairy vetch is that winter kills. And just about every time that you find that someone has had a problem with winter killing is they've gotten the seed from south of where they plant. So that they're, they're taking winter vetch that isn't adapted to the northerly climate. So that you can take winter vetch from farther north and it will adapt quite well farther south. But you can't take it farther south and adapt it to farther north. You know, so watch out what you have when you're getting these varieties that you get them from areas that they have, been, they have winter tolerance. Okay, and then we talked a little bit about daikon. Okay, daikon is uh, called the oilseed radish and it's also, uh, one of the people called it the biodrill because it can take those compacted layers that I showed you early in the presentation and it, it with its root power, can fracture these, uh, these areas so that not only earthworms till, but this is a tillage radish. In the state of California, they, when they fumigate an acre of strawberries, it costs $3,300. $20 of daikon seeding can give you the effect of that fumigation that would cost $3,300. So, you know, like this is, this is an amazing type of thing. And in both corn and soybeans, when they pr- have had a previous crop of, uh, of daikon, it will produce 10 to 12% higher yields in corn and in soybeans when they have daikon because of the effect of the daikon. Now, does anybody like daikon? It actually is pretty nice, if you, particularly pickled, I like it. Uh, provides an ability to prevent the leaching of the nitrogen. So this is the sequestration effect that, they, that you talk about is the nutrients aren't lost but they're recycled in between your, your system. Increase of 11 percent. A fragile pan is just a clay soil where you develop the compacted layers. 11 percent in corn and 10 percent in soybeans from working with this clay pan and also getting this biofumigation effect. Now another biofumigation crop is uh, all of the family of the mustards and the cabbages produce what are called isothiocyanates and black mustard is actually another one that is being used quite a bit and what they do is when you actually disrupt the tissue from these plants they develop an enzyme that liberates cyanide and it basically kills off the pathogens in the soil that includes weeds it includes fungi it includes bacteria. It's pretty uh, general uh, type of thing. So you know, like actually, for less than thirty dollars of cover crop investment, you can get the effect of a fumigation of three thousand three hundred dollars per acre. So you may want, if you're growing soybean, uh, strawberries, you may want to grow a crop of daikon, daikon, and then you probably could develop even a nice system for organic strawberry. This is to show how these symbiosis... We have the symbiosis of the earthworm and then the microorganisms. And now we have the symbiosis here shown of the plant root and the mycorrhizal fungi. And you can see how much expanded this web of small little uh, hyphae or filaments go deeply into the soil and greatly extend the effective root system of the plant. Okay. Now, I think people are, uh, you know, we've had almost uh, 40 years now of this Rodale experiment, and we've seen overall no difference in yield between the conventional system and using all the, the inputs according to the recommendations of Penn State University and our organically improved system where the nutrients are coming from the soil, except in drought years. In the drought years, there's no comparison that the organic system will will out yield all the time. But in terms of profit, the profit goes up even when we don't look at the organic premium the profit goes up because we are, have reduced the inputs, which are significant costs, in, in the process. Now, another thing is we talked about this idea of not having to have such big tractors and not having to have so much fossil fuel input when we, when we go to the thing of having the biology do it. And so we have also the energy reduction And we have the, uh, because we're using less inputs, the inputs are based on petroleum products. And so we also have less greenhouse gas related to our inputs. But the real key thing here is that because we're building soil, we are counteracting greenhouse gases and the changes of our environment, which can be uh, accelerating, uh, accelerating into the future here. If we look at the economics the green the green line is the uh, price for the organic corn. The uh, brown line or golden line or whatever that color is that the lower line is conventional prices. So in the marketplace not only do we have the competitive yield with less inputs but we have an organic premium and so while other uh, commodities have been f- having falling prices. There is a consistent organic premium because actually there aren't that many farmers doing organic, and there's a lot of demand in the market for organic, so the prices are better. Finally, let's see. So I'd like you to, to think about keeping an open mind. You've been open mind about going to no-till. Uh, You may have started out in a situation where you couldn't see that you could have done it, except with a lot of inputs, but if you can be open to try the other, it might be something that could could keep you, or your future generations, into business, making dollars, because it makes dollars and cents when you look at the numbers. It also means that you'll have a better environment, and that means that you're going to have less health costs, and you know, like of course, I'm a, I'm a person who comes from an environmental background. My family was in farming, but I've, my, my passion has always been the environment. I've always loved the environment. So that this idea that we could help the environment so that the environment would be more productive, we could be more economically sustained, and uh, it's something that I believe floats all boats if you look at it. Uh, with an open mind so th- but what is involved here is that we have to be able to change right change our perspectives and uh, try try new things uh, we we have to be more intensive with our use of information because actually biology is more complex than chemistry is And uh, we have to get into the idea that we have to verify and set up our system so we can be certified, so we can get these uh, higher prices. So that's kind of what I have. I I tried to uh, focus on what some of the underpinnings are about the biology that will cause our soil to become better as uh, as we focus on the underlying soil rather than the input. Thank you you very much.
1: Thank you, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that uh, look into earthworms and also onto the organic side a little bit. And I know uh, you're going to be holding a classroom, uh, number 21, on Friday morning from 9.10 to 10.10. You're going to get into a little bit more about the challenge of the one-pass Uh, organic systems, a no-till organic system, and and that's going to be down in the Indiana ballroom, I know, so we'll look Um, forward to more of that. Yes, We do have some time for some questions, so we'll start over there by Mike. Go ahead. Uh, Yes, on your data, you're finding that there's less earthworms in corn as opposed to soybeans. Are you finding that because the the low uh, amount of seeds per acre uh, based on corn compared to soybeans? Or is it just the ground being covered? Or... uh, just curious why you're finding that.
0: Could you repeat that? I didn't get that. I think that the
1: question was about why you're finding fewer earthworms in the corn, corn rotation you know, versus a corn soybean
0: rotation. Why uh, that would occur? Soybeans uh, have higher nutritive value. And so actually, they feed the uh, earthworms. Their biomass feeds the earthworms more effectively because they have higher protein. They have uh, higher mineral content. All the things that stimulate the uh, reproduction and growth of earthworms are, are enhanced in legumes compared to grasses.
1: And would the row spacing have something to do with that as well with the corn, uh, uh, the wider spacing, or as opposed to uh, right. wheat? No, no this being is being something that,
0: that that type of data was on equal 30-inch row spacing. So it's not the row spacing. It's the soybean and its nutritional content is better for, for stimulating worms. They like the protein.
1: <laughs> All right, got one to your right.
0: I uh, read in a, in a book on ancient agriculture and agronomy that earthworms were not native to the North American continent. They were brought by early settlers. You might know the answer to that. Right. Well, there are introduced earthworms, and these introduced earthworms seem to take over, right? But there also is a lot of native species of earthworms. Uh, Earthworms, do you know how big the largest earthworms are? Actually, there's a species in Australia, there's a species in Africa, and there's a species in South America that grow up to 20 feet long and they actually are thicker than your fist. Do You know what I mean? So like, and all the, you know, like there's tremendous variability of earthworms, but you know, like uh, I don't care in myself as a farmer, if uh, when I start feeding the worms, the exotic worms uh, feed on this? Because I understand that their activities are largely beneficial, right? Uh, would I, I, I wouldn't mind if they were endemic worms either, right? But regardless if they're endemic or exotic, you have to feed them if you're going to get the effect that we're looking at. OK.
1: Paul. Paul, you weren't, you sure you weren't confusing that with an anaconda, were you?
0: I mean, that, that's, that's pretty big. So. That's, that's pretty darn big, but, I, yep. you know, like, I, I, I saw these pictures, and I looked at the articles, and, you know, I didn't measure them myself. Yeah. We got one over to your left. But there's some again. enormous worms, yeah. I'd like to focus on Midwest species, maybe. Um, how many reproductive cycles can an earthworm have in a typical growing season? I didn't get that at all.
1: Could you, could you repeat that again?
0: How many reproductive cycles can an earthworm have in a typical Okay, so the reproductive season? cycle of a worm is between 30 and 40 days. Okay, so like, let's say that we have uh, six months that are, the worms wouldn't be uh, uh, very active because of temperature. But in those six months, you could have uh, four to six cycles of reproduction. And, you know, of course, one of the advantages that earthworms have is they, they don't have non-productive individuals because of the hermaphroditic nature of the earthworm. Yes? Well, they're underground, so you don't see very many earthworms. When you really see the earthworms is when you have a really heavy rain and they all come to the surface, right? Then you, then you have some appreciation. Yeah. Like, for instance, in the spring, when you get a really heavy rain, uh, like in my yard, of course, I cultivate the earthworms around my tree, right? That's a, I, have a, I call it the earthworm garden and actually the earthworms will come up and I'll have uh, hundreds of earthworms on a little pad that is next to, to my house, right? Got one right in front of you here. So if uh-huh. you put, uh, use manure as a nutrient uh, addition, uh, there's some that say that you get a stratification of nutrients then? Yeah. Uh, manure, uh, earthworms love manure. Right? Now, the, the limitation with earthworms is that unlike compost, you know, like when you make a, uh, a compost pile, the idea is to generate a lot of heat. So they make big piles so they will insulate themselves and create pasteurization type of temperatures. But when you are, are working like in my earthworm garden, I always keep my pile low so it doesn't generate heat because earthworms don't like heat, right? If you keep your, your mass less than uh, a foot and a half deep it doesn't generate the type of heat and it doesn't insulate so the earthworms will just come up there and feed and come down and they'll just keep on worming out the material and that's what you want. Now if you're going to ha- have like an earthworm garden you can like put a circle of rocks around. They love rocks because that gives them a place that they hide from the birds, because as soon as you have your earthworm garden, the birds are going to come to that, right? You know, so I always put a circle of rocks around. I never have the layer higher than, the, than my rock so that I know that they're not uh, maintaining the heat and it's keeping the temperature. And then I try to keep it uh, moist and in the shade and moderate it, and I feed, I feed it some calcium in either gypsum or lime, so that they can they need the calcium for their metabolism. They, you know like when I started looking at the the uh, anatomy of the earthworm and the the you know I understood that calcium is the key for an earthworm because it needs that to detoxify what's going in the soil and to work its gizzard and to form the pellets that it needs. And it's this high amount of calcium that keeps that pellet persistent because it works like a mortar. You know, so like this is what gives it the long-range ability to help the soil is that calcium. And it's pretty amazing actually.
1: Got one in the back left a little bit.
0: How do you go about uh, developing mycorrhizal fungi in a high pH, like over eight soils? How do you develop mycorrhizae in a high pH soil? Well, you know, like uh, the experience that I have uh, is related to a Michael Melendez in New Mexico, and he's dealing with a soil that is highly alkaline. And he found that once you were able to start uh, seeding the soil with humates, that these uh, allowed for greater proliferation of the mycorrhizal fungi that were related to trees and he was able to produce forests on areas that had less than 10 inches of yearly precipitation and you know you should visit his place it's really quite amazing but The mycorrhizae can can grow in areas if you uh, if you get them started and then the mycorrhizae also maintain the moisture relations. So if we go back to the photosynthesis what are the basic elements that we need for photosynthesis? We need carbon dioxide and water. So carbon dioxide and water are married together. And what you find in systems that are biologically based is that as your life increases in the soil by using things like mycorrhizae or adding humates and stuff like this, it allows that process to seed. And as long as you're able to not interfere with it and feed it, the carbon just keeps on increasing. And then that means that you are conserving water and you are adjusting the soil through the life that is in there so that it will promote life. Life is promoting life. And so if you can get it started, it will take care of itself. It's, uh, it's the biological transformation. In f- right in front of you. Uh, which uh, scenario will give the greatest plant growth, the greatest benefit for growing a crop, If I have a cover crop of grass and legume and I harvest that for hay, feed it to cattle, take the manure back to the field, or if I just simply let the worms and natural decay turn that crop to worm poop and decay, which is the greatest crop growth potential? Well, I think the, the greatest potential is when you actually marry the, the plant and the animal systems because the plants and the animals were meant to feed each other, right? That's the part of the natural. Uh, so, you know, like your, your best situation is to have a system that grows your crop very naturally and then to rotate your crop system with an animal system. That's, and that way, uh, the manures are being recycled. And one of the things that happens, if you keep animals in the same place, what happens to the animals? They start getting diseases and problems and stuff like this. If you keep plants in the same place all the time, they start having problems. So that actually, if, when you're able to rotate those types of things, you can uh, multiply the advantages both to the plant and to the animals. So it's, it's like a rotation in corn and soybeans since we have a lot of corn and soybean type of people here. What happens when you have had a bunch of uh, corn on corn and you grow a soybean crop? The first thing that happens is you get about a 20% increase in your soybean crop compared to uh, if you didn't have that. And the same thing happens where if you have soybeans and then you plant corn and so like if you're able to do that with a plant and animal system it mimics the way that animals were meant to support plants and plants were meant to support animals right it's the ecological way now if I have something like manure my best case scenario for me would be to give a quick compost of that manure and then feed it to worms and then use the worm castings as a premium organic feeding mechanism because it's so stimulative to plants so you can put that in as a starter organic fertilizer and get amazing results because it has everything and it has the growth stimulating factors in it also.
1: Got one last question right over here you mentioned that earthworms are
0: very uh, sensitive to soil pH. What is the ideal pH for an earthworm? Uh, 6.5 is about as good as you can do. Uh, you know, but you, you have some ability. Uh, plants will do pretty well from about 6.3 to 7.3. But outside of that range, you start getting problems on the more alkaline side with micronutrient deficiencies. And on the more acid side with uh, toxicities, right? So like uh, basically in that map that I showed you globally, the alkaline areas were the blue areas and the red areas were the acid areas. So that, you know, you have to be uh, aware of of this type of thing. And people, you know, to me, the first thing that any farmer should be looking at is whether they have their pH optima optimized. And this is really not taught very much. But if you get the pH right, then the biology will kick in very, very uh, significantly. If your pH is off, it's a hard time getting the optimized results. I'll
1: do do one more quick
0: one. One, and it's quick. Anhydrous ammonia and and worms. Uh, Uh What's the effect of anhydrous ammonia on worms? It's to kill them. Anhydrous ammonia is, uh, first the ammonia vapor is, they find it toxic. And the um, ammonification will lead also to acidification of the soil. So that it's kind of like a one-two punch, not very good for for earthworms, right? So that if you have a situation where you're you're really uh, concerned about uh, resolving a... uh, a nitrogen deficiency that was occurring on your corn at a specific stage or something like, like this and you wanted to maintain the worm activity and stuff like this, you could have the chance of, uh, of p- supplying the nitrate in an organic certified practice by applying uh, Chilean nitrate. And that would provide the, the thing. It would not acidify your, your situation and it, ha- it doesn't have a a big problem with related to worms.